So good morning. Uh, my name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, no, nobody died. Nothing's wrong. I've had everybody I've met this morning. Why are you dressed like that? I'm just keeping you on your toes. That's it. Okay. And it feels good outside, doesn't it? I'm, I'm, I'm reminding myself of the cool weather. So maybe you as well. So don't worry. It's okay. It's going to be okay. I know I'm wearing a coat. It's okay. You can wear a coat to church. We're in the middle of a series in the prophet Isaiah. Believe it or not, there are only three weeks after today, three Sundays after today before Advent. So it's coming fast. Thanksgiving's right around the corner. And we've been doing this all, all um, fall, and we'll do so until right up until Advent. And so we are just making our way through these, these wonderful passages uh, from the prophet Isaiah. And this morning we come to yet another. We actually two passages that are grouped together, coupled together because of a similar theme in the two of them. So if you want to sing, oh, it's sing. It calls us to sing. That's the first word. If you want to, if you want to sing while I read, please feel free to do so. But if you want to read along with me, you can from Isaiah chapter 54, and then we'll skip forward to Isaiah 62, uh, down in verse 11 of this first bit. Just in case you're wondering who this is addressed to, he says, Oh, afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted. And so if that's you this morning, these are your words. This is what God has to say to you. Let's read together. Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will not be, excuse me, for, for you will forget the shame of your youth. And the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger, for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. This is like the days of Noah to me. As I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall never depart from you and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord. And can all God's people say, yes. The Lord who has compassion on you. So, O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, behold. I will set your stones in antimony. Lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of agate, your gates of carbuncles, and all your walls of precious stones. And then Isaiah 62, you shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord, and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called, my delight is in her. And your land married, for the Lord delights in you. And your land shall be married, for as a young man marries a young woman, so, your, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. This is the word of the Lord. Isn't that great? What does it feel like to be delighted in? 
my first daughter, her name is Abigail, and we named her that because her name means my father's delight. And I wanted her to know. I wanted her to know and live and know what it was to be delighted in. What does it feel like to be delighted in? Isn't it a great feeling? Or if you've never felt it, you know the absence of that, don't you? Because we're made, we're made for that. In this series of sermons, we've been laboring to correct wrong ideas about God and what he's like. Because that is what Isaiah is laboring to do for Israel as they go through this hard time of exile. John Calvin, however, began his famous Institutes of the Christian Religion by saying this. He said, nearly all of the wisdom we possess consists in two parts, actually. The knowledge of God and of ourselves. And the two go hand in hand. So that without rightly knowing God, he went on to argue at least, we cannot rightly know ourselves. So if we're full of wrong ideas about who he is and what he is like, then we will also be full of wrong ideas about who we are and what our lives should be like. We'll, we'll think more highly of ourselves than we should and suffer from a superiority complex that just makes a mess of life, or we'll think too less of ourselves than we should and live with an inferiority complex, and both are forms of pride. Neither is humility. But the other is the same. So as our wrong ideas about God get corrected, which is, again, what we're trying to do here and what Isaiah's trying to do, as those wrong ideas about God get corrected, then our wrong ideas about ourselves start to get corrected too. And that is really the journey that the prophet takes us on here in Isaiah chapter 54. It's a journey of self-discovery. In light of the amazing, mind-boggling, emotion-rearranging, life-changing love of God for his people. And we're going to walk right through the text. We're going to use Isaiah 62 as kind of supplemental material this morning, but it's so poignant and I wanted to get, get it in there. But in Isaiah 54, we're going to walk right through and just follow the argument as he goes through. And we're going to see that he begins with a promise in chapter 1, chapters one, I mean, chapter one verse 1. Verses 1 through 3 really spell out a promise. Verses 4 through 6 show us the obstacle to really living into the promise that God gives us here. And then verses 7 through 10 show us... The solution, and the solution is that we can live in the reality of God's delight in us as those he has brought to himself, okay? So let's, let's just walk through the text together. What does it feel like to be delighted in? First, there's a promise, and so let's go back and read it again, beginning in verse 1. Sing, O barren one, and remember the call to sing. I've been struck by how often Isaiah calls us to sing, and singing is the response of being face-to-face with the reality of something good in your life happening, something amazing going on that you have nothing to do about and nothing to do with, and all you can do is just sing about it. That's what we see here, too. Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have, been in, in labor, who have not been in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Okay, so you have the theme of barrenness here, and barrenness is a major theme in the Bible. And it's a sensitive subject, I know, because many people struggle through that, and it's a really sad and scary thing. But anytime God is about to push the mission forward, as you read the Bible, anytime he's about to push the mission forward, it always seems to start with a barren woman. So you have Sarah in Genesis 11, you have Hannah in 1 Samuel chapters 1 and 2, you have Manoah's wife, we're not even told her name, she's the mother of Gideon, excuse me, in Judges 6, you have Elizabeth. In Luke chapter 1, over and over again, we come across barren women in the the Bible. So when you're reading the Bible and you come across a barren woman, it's time to take out the popcorn and sit back and enjoy because the show is about to start. You should immediately think, okay, I wonder what God's about to do here. 
Because the barren womb is a metaphor for our spiritual bankruptcy before God. We do not have what we need to save ourselves. We have no strength of our own, no righteousness that we can claim for ourselves. We are empty of any spiritual life apart from God. We cannot do life on our own strength. That is what that image of barrenness teaches us. But it also teaches us that the barren womb, even though it is a metaphor for our spiritual bankruptcy before God, it is also a metaphor, it's also the receptacle of God's grace and power. And so Augustine said, God gives where he finds empty hands. Luther, today's Reformation Day, right? So you gotta quote Luther at least once in the sermon. So Luther said, he said, God creates out of nothing. So God can't make anything of you until you're nothing. And the lesson is this, that you can't be right with God until you know that the rightness that you need doesn't come from you. But as soon as you acknowledge your spiritual nothingness, then God can give you his righteousness as a gift. You can't do life in your own strength. You might think you can, you might try, but I promise eventually at some point you'll wear out. But with God, that moment where you come to the end of your strength, that moment when you've got nothing left in the tank, that moment, right, when you are just on your face, on the mat, on the ground with God, that is not the end of the story, it's actually the beginning. It's the very beginning because you've finally gotten to the place where he can go to work. I mean, Isaiah says elsewhere, he says, the Lord waits to be gracious to you. He is waiting for you to run out of strength. He's waiting for you to come to the end of yourself and to call out to him for help. And that is when the story begins. So we have this image because God wants us to acknowledge our spiritual bankruptcy at need right at the beginning, right at the very beginning of, this, of our lives, right at the beginning of this time together. This is who we are. And it's not something that we have to be ashamed of. We can admit the truth about ourselves. And here's why. And it's because of the promise that he makes here in verse 1. We are barren, but the promise that even in our barrenness, we are barren, but we are still prolific in our barrenness. Because of God's grace and power. Do you see that? Look at what he says. He says, your weakness and need should actually be a cause of celebration, not shame. You should sing about it. You should sing about these places in your life. You should rejoice about the empty parts of your life because God promises to work in such a way that the barren and the desolate ones will produce more children than the one who was married and able to have children in their own strength. Isn't that amazing? That verse, verse one, he says, when you're weak, you actually accomplish more than when you're capable. That nothingness is more potent than human strength. Let me say that again. Nothingness is more potent than human strength because it's God's power that's at work. Uh, in Galatians chapter four, Paul quotes this verse and he uses Sarah and Hagar, Abraham's two women, right? You remember that story in the Old Testament? He uses them to illustrate this verse. So there's Sarah, and you remember Sarah. The first thing we learn about Sarah in Genesis 11 is that she is barren, she can't have children. But by the time, by the, time the story progresses, not only is she barren, but she's old. She's wrinkly, she's worn out, she has failed. She's physically physically unable to have children. And then there's Hagar, young, beautiful, physically ready for childbearing. Now, we're meant to ask the question, well, which of the two of those would you think would bear children that would eventually outnumber the stars in the sky, which was God's promise to Abraham, right? And of course, we know the lesson of the story is that God did it through Sarah, not Hagar. 
which means he's able to accomplish the most with those who have the least because he loves to magnify his grace. Our barrenness is God's workshop. And Jesus is very clear to say, apart from him, we can do nothing. So let me ask this question of you. Where do you feel your emptiness the most? Where do you feel it the most? Where do you feel your nothingness the most? What is the area of your life where that just comes home to your heart? And then let me be a friend to you this morning and say this to you. Most likely, that is where God will do his best work in and for and through you. Because the stronger you are, the more capable you feel, the more confident and self-reliant you become, and God still works, but it's muted. It's, it's muted. There's a strange scene in Mark chapter 6 where Jesus goes to his hometown, and, uh, and they did not believe in him, right? They, a prophet has no honor in his hometown. You know that, 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 um, that saying? He goes back home. And the people there don't believe in him, and, you know, because they just know him as the kid he was or whatever. But then it says, this is Mark 6, verse 5. If you don't believe me, you can look it up later. It says, and he could do no mighty work there. Hmm. He prayed for the sick and he healed a few of them. He still worked, as you read it. He still did some things, but his work was limited. His work was muted by their unbelief, by the absence of their nothingness, by their lack of lack. So their lack of lack in the face of this one who could do for them everything they needed was something that caused him to be able to do, he was not able to do mighty works among them. I think we should ponder that. I really think we should try to ponder exactly what that means. But I was reminded of that passage reading Halsby's book on prayer, which is just, Bob, I don't even know. Uh, but Bob Allums told me to read it, and I don't, I, I don't know why I haven't read this book before now, Bob. So you haven't discipled me well enough. I should have read this like years ago. But he makes the case that we need to be reconciled to our helplessness, to become resigned to it so that it just becomes a part of who we are, that it's not a cause of pain or anxiety anymore. He says Jesus, he uses the image from Revelation that Jesus is knocking on the door of our lives. And all prayer really is, is opening the door and letting him into our helplessness, giving him access to our needs. But this isn't a sermon about prayer. The point is this, that your helplessness is the most powerful tool that you have don't need to say that again too your helplessness is the most powerful spiritual tool that you have that's what this promise here means but before we move on let's apply this and you'll see I want to make application to the present the past and the future so let's apply this to just our lives our, our day-to-day lives in the present day what are the implications well for one We're told here to go through life singing. Sing when you feel strong, but keep singing when you feel weak. Don't get on the roller coaster, the emotional roller coaster of circumstances, because if anything, it's the opposite of what we normally do. We normally feel good when things are going good, and we get anxious and afraid when things start to go bad. But if what the prophet says here is true, then we should probably be a little more anxious and wary when it's going good. And we should probably get really excited and hopeful and expectant when it starts to go bad. So seek to live with a joy that allows you to show up for life. I mean, to really, to really show up for life and put yourself out there. I mean, look what he goes on to say here. If verse 1 is true, then you can live like verses 2 and 3 tell you to. Look at verses 2 and 3 again. He says, enlarge the place of your tent. 
Let the curtains of your habitation be stretched out. Don't hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes, for you will spread abroad to the right and to the left. That's an image of somebody who's just going out there after life. They're putting themselves out there. If weakness is more potent than strength, then you can dream big. You can stretch yourself. You can take risks. You can attempt great things for God because you expect great things from him. You don't have to shrink back. You don't have to fall back into the shadows. You can put yourself out there and go for it because even in your weakness, you are capable of more than you might think. So don't live shrinking back. Put yourself out there. Secondly, what a great promise, but there's an obstacle. And it comes immediately in the next verse, in verse 4. That too often our weakness is not a cause of comfort. We are not reconciled to it. We're embarrassed by it. We don't believe the promise that God makes in verse 1. We live in unbelief because of shame. And so you see there in verse 4. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be for you will not be disgraced, for you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. So the opposite of verses two through three of spreading, you know, abroad and getting out there and risking and dreaming and putting yourself out there is fear there in verse four. See it, it halts. Two and three halt with this introduction of fear. Fear not, he says, shine away, in other words from vulnerability, not putting yourself out there, shrinking back, hiding. And this text is incredibly helpful because, again, as I said last week, it gets under the hood of our fear. It says don't be afraid. It diagnoses the reality that so many of us, we don't live like verses 2 and 3. We live with fear instead, but then it goes underneath the hood of our fear, and it says that fear, if you really get to the bottom of it, it really does come from this idea of shame. He says there's shame, there's disgrace that we live with. We're ashamed. And so in Genesis Uh, the early chapters before sin, humanity was naked and without shame. That's verse uh, 25 of chapter 2. But then with sin, we became aware of our nakedness. And as soon as we became aware of our nakedness, what's the very first thing the man and the woman did? Do you remember what they do? They dove into the bushes. (laughs) They hid. And they tried to cover themselves from God and from one another. Now, that is a brilliant piece of psychology. That Genesis does there. It's, it's one of the reasons why you should trust the scriptures. Nobody, I mean, it, it's just a, it is a brilliant story and two-sentence summation of the, our entire psychological co- construct. Brene Brown has done some great research on the difference between guilt and shame. Guilt is, I did something wrong. Shame is, I am wrong. Right? Shame is the way we come to feel about ourselves because of the wrong we've done. So Glenn Harrison refers to shame as the emotion of inferiority. He, that's what he calls it, the emotion of inferiority, which is the result of sin, but also just living in a fallen world. In other words, he goes on to say, he says, shame isn't always linked to moral failures. There are plenty of times when we make a mistake, but it's not sinful. It's not, it's not something you know, terrible we've done. You know, it's just, it's just we, we're not perfect, and so we go about life and we make mistakes sometimes. Or we get thrown into the spotlight in some unexpected way, and we're awkward, right? And we feel embarrassed by that. We feel shame because in these moments, we fall short of the impression that we're trying to make on the world. And it's a compounding effect over a lifetime. Let me put this in theological terms because we need to stick with that, I think. We are all guilty. Right? We're all guilty. The man and the woman ate the forbidden fruit. 
And we have all participated in their rebellion. We have all done things that God has forbidden. We have all failed to do what he has commanded of us. So, but scratch the surface of those moral failures and you'll find beneath in every one of us an aspiration to be like God, a rejection of our dependence, a refusal to take God at his word. This is, this is our theology of sin. There is an objective record of guilt that stands against us. That's what Zephaniah was talking about, the judgments that are standing against us. But because we are guilty, we come into the world this way already damaged. Because we are guilty having participated in that sin, we've lost what we used to call, in theological terms, our original righteousness. Our, our original righteousness, this being unaware of our nakedness. In other words, there was a moment when the first man and the first woman were so right, right? There was such integrity and wholeness and completion about their being. They were so right. They were so whole that they were completely self-forgetful. They were naked and they didn't even know it. I mean, can you imagine that? I can report, I say this every time, I've never had one moment of that experience in my entire life. If I'm naked, I know it. Right? And I make sure nobody else. <laughs> but they were naked and they didn't even know it. I mean, just imagine that. Stop and think about that for a minute. That, that sort of absence of self-awareness. They were completely, because they were completely known and completely loved by their creator. But of course we know that all of that's been lost. We don't feel right. We feel all wrong, and so we're hyper self-conscious and mostly embarrassed and scared to death of really being seen and afraid to put ourselves out there. The Bible says that our hearts condemn us. We, I like this phrase, we think ourselves down. <laughs> we think ourselves down. There's an internal conversation of self-criticism and doubt that leaves us sure that if people really knew me, they could never love me. So we shrink into the shadows because we're afraid or we step into the spotlight because we're afraid and desperate to prove otherwise. But at our core is deep insecurity and fear. And there's a theological solution to this problem. There's a theological solution to the problem of our guilt, the gospel. It's what we talk about every week, that Jesus Christ, God himself come to earth, has taken away the judgments against us by taking the sentence upon himself. He gave his life in the place of ours on the cross. That's our good news. So Paul writes in Romans, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died and was raised. Who can bring a charge against God's elect? Your own heart can't bring a charge against you that's going to stick at the end of the day if you're in Christ. That's the theology of grace. But see, there's also the psychology. And the psychology, unfortunately, often lags behind the theology. So I see all kinds of people who say they believe in Jesus. And they know they've been forgiven but they don't feel it. They have no firsthand, right? They, they know in a sense, okay, I'm right with God. I know, you know, Jesus died on the cross for me and they can say all these things. They can give the Sunday school answers, but they have no firsthand experience of God's delighting in them. They've got the gospel theology right, but the gospel psychology hasn't caught up to it. They still feel ashamed. And I think a lot of us live there. Uh, this past week, we had a girl gang and dad movie night at our house and we watched uh, a movie that came out recently from a Broadway show that was put together a number of uh, years ago called Evan Dear Evan Hansen. 
And I just want to say, you really should. I've been um, I've been listening to the soundtrack of it a little bit after we watched it. Not because I mean it's really not a sing song. Like you just feel happy and like like dance and bop and sing the songs because it's not that kind of stuff. But it is so profound. I really think it is a brilliant treatment of the predicament uh, that we are in, having lost any sense of transcendence. So the, the, just the, the over, being overrun by secularism, the psychology that's left kind of in the ruins of not believing there's a God who sees and knows and loves. And um, Ben Platt plays a teenager who struggles with social anxiety disorder. And it, and it really puts a finger, I think, on not only angsty preteen and teen culture. So if you have teenagers and you want to understand them a little bit better, you ought to watch the movie too, probably. But it really... It's about all that. It's about being. It's about being seen and known. And it poses the question: If people really knew who I was, could they love me? It's about loneliness. It's about uh, if you fall and nobody hears, did you ever make a sound? What? What? I mean, you know, there's just some profound things. It's really. It's a story about shame and grace. In the very first lyric of the first song, uh, the movie opens with the title character, Evan Hansen, in his room on the first day of school trying to talk himself into the courage to go and go to high school. He says, I've learned to slam on the brake before I even turn the key. And I think it's a really poignant line. I've learned to slam on the brake before I even turn the key, before I make a mistake, before I lead with the worst of me. Give them no reason to stare, no slipping up if you slip away. So I've got nothing to share. No, I've got nothing to say. I think it's exactly what I'm trying to describe here, here, the fear here in verse 4, the opposite of verses 2 and 3. But then comes a line in that first opening song that becomes really important, makes my point. He comes back around to it at the end of the show. He says, step out, step out of the sun if you keep getting burned. Step out, step out of the sun if you keep getting burned. Step out, step out of the sun because you've learned. Right, so this is, as I said, it's the morning of the first day of school, and he's, he's just saying, you know what, I'm just, I'm going to go, but I'm, gonna, I'm just going to lay low, I'm going to hide. You know, he keeps to himself, he doesn't make any friends, he's scared to death of being seen because he believes that if people saw him, they wouldn't like what they see because he doesn't like what he sees. And that's shame. Now it's a long story, and I don't want to ruin the movie for you, you should, you should watch it. I think there's some really profound things in it, but eventually this boy Evan Hansen, he has a breakthrough. Now, it's a windy road, and there's a lot of heartbreak in between, but at the end of the movie, he comes back to the same words that the movie started with. So the movie ends uh, with the same words. He says, I've learned to slam on the brake before I even turn the key, before I make a mistake, before I leave with the worst of me. N- I never let them see the worst of me. He's, he's, he's singing this, but then something's changed. This time, uh, because of what's happened to him in the story, he knows that he just can't, live, can't keep living from this, this same place. So he says... He kind of starts to ponder. He says, but what if everyone saw? What if everyone knew? Will I just keep running away from what's true? All I ever do is run. He's becoming, he's becoming aware of kind of what, the way he's living his life, right? All I ever do is run, run. So how do I step in, step into the sun? Right, he started by saying, step out, step out of the sun if you keep getting burned. Here at the end, he's saying, I, I realize I've got to step in. I've got to step in to the sun. We were watching it, and Abby's there, and she just blurted out, walk in the light, right? And I was like, yes, that's right, because the scripture t- calls us to walk in the light. And he goes home, and he finally confesses to his mom the most, the most ugly, 
gross things, the things that he's been keeping a secret, and uh, it's this incredible moment of vulnerability, and he says, as he makes this confession to her, he says, you probably hate me. And, <laughs> and his mom says, no, no. I know you, and I love you. And uh, it's that moment of being completely naked and being loved and not condemned. It changes his life. And it can change yours. It's what can change your life and mine too, but we have to find the courage to be vulnerable. See, that's the, that's the point. To step out of the shadows and into the light, to be fully known and yet loved, which of course is also the good news of our gospel. That, that is exactly true of our God, that he knows us to the bottom and loves us still. But before we move on and talk about that in detail, let's apply this again. And let me just talk for just one minute about the past because Isaiah says, that God's love can make you forget your shame. Do you see that in verse four? It's so easy. Isn't it so easy to live in the past, to be full of regret, to live looking back over your shoulder, just waiting for your mistakes to catch up to you? But listen to what God says. It's in chapter 43 and then again in chapter 45. This is what the Lord says here in Isaiah. He says, I have blotted out your sins like a cloud, like a mist. I do not remember them. And if God doesn't remember your sins because of what Jesus has done for those who believe in him. If God doesn't remember your sins, then you shouldn't remember them either. Don't live haunted by the sins of your past. God doesn't keep a record of your wrongs. So why do you? So we see this amazing promise in verse one and the way we should live our lives there in verses two and three, but then the obstacle, verse four, fear, and then underneath the, fear, underneath the hood of fear, the shame and and the reproach and the, and the, you know, the self-condemnation that we can live with. But then beginning uh, in verses 5 and beyond, we see the solution. Well, what can make you forget your shame? He says we can forget our shame. Well, what is it that can make us forget our shame? Well, you, only if you know the degree to which God delights in you. So he says, verse 5, for your maker is your husband. And then skip over to verse, uh, verses 4 and 5 of chapter 62. No more shall you be called forsaken, but you shall be called my delight. For the Lord delights in you as a bridegroom rejoices over the bride. So shall your God rejoice over you. Now we should pause and ask the question. How does our increasingly secular world answer this question? What do you do about shame? How is it possible to forget your shame? And typically, all you hear from people kind of in the... Um, the positive self-esteem movement and so forth, it's something like this. Well, you gotta believe in yourself. You gotta accept yourself. See, that's your problem, is you just don't accept yourself. And we're generations into this massive cultural self-esteem project, but here's the thing. All of the data suggests that it's failed miserably because we have not been made in a way that we can award value, worth, or meaning to ourselves. We need an objective assessment. You were made the Bible teaches to look into the face of your maker and see his smile. That's what you were made for. To look into God's face and to see in his eyes his love for you. Nothing short of that can heal us. And so the gospel is the good news that God smiles over you because of Jesus. But don't miss the last part. Don't twist the gospel into baptized self-esteem projects. God does not love us because we're so awesome. He loves us in spite of ourselves. The because of his love for you and me has nothing to do with you and me. He loves us because he loves us. And his lo he loves us because of Jesus and it has nothing to do with us. It's all grace. 
And it's the moment, see, the reason I'm laboring at that is it's the moment that that truth, it's when that truth dawns, it's when that thing comes home to your heart right there that the healing can begin. It's when Evan Hansen sat on the couch with his mom and everything was finally out in the open and he was his most ugly self and he couldn't hide anymore and the outside of his life finally matched the inside, right? And yet she said, I see you. I'm not surprised by any of this. I see all of your ugliness and I love you. And it's the same with us. Hardly ever does our outside match the way we feel about ourselves inside. We make sure of that, don't we? And so we never get the chance to be loved out of our shame. That's the problem. Because we always know that people might love us, but it's because they love, they love me because of how I've, how I've created the outside to not look like what I feel like on the inside. But here's the thing. God, God sees all the way to the bottom of you. He's the only one that sees past all of that. To him, the inside is just as plain as the outside. Tomorrow, I hope you'll read with us in community Bible reading. In Hebrews chapter 4, we'll read this, that nothing is hidden from his sight, that we are all naked and exposed to his gaze. And yet, for Jesus' sake, if you believe, he says, I know you. I'm not surprised by any of that. And I love you. And if you wonder about that, just consider he sent Jesus Christ to live and die in your place to clothe you with his beauty. Do you see all the language that describes how God loves, how God's love beautifies those that he loves? I don't have time to get into it, but it's like in verses 11 and 12 of chapter 54, he just starts to, I can't even pronounce all the jewels because we really don't even know what they are. Carbuncles and agate and all of these things. That it describes the way, and it happens again, by the way, in chapter 62, verses 2 through 4. There's all of this language of, of jewelry and, and precious metals and stones to describe the way that God's love can beautify a person. Righteousness, brightness, we're told. It says in verse 3 of chapter 62 that if, if you're in Christ, you're a beauty in his hand. God bedazzles himself with you. And he delights in you. Do you know that? See, most people I talk to, they believe God forgives them. But they don't believe he delights in them. But it's right here. I mean, don't miss it right here. When you put your faith in Jesus, he changes your name to my delight. And it's hard to believe, I know. And so he gives us an image, and this is the last thing I have to say today. He gives us an image to help us picture it better. Isaiah says that God is a husband. And that is for many a burden, not a comfort, I know. I mean, the reality is we can lose this in marriage over time. We spend so long sinning against one another that we can lose the delight that we once had. And if that's true for you, I'm sorry, you deserve better. My wife, Ashley, deserves better from me. I told her that this week. She is, if you know her, you know, she's just the best. I don't even know what to say. She's a wonder to me, and I'm more amazed by her every day. And yet, she doesn't always feel my delight because I'm a sinner. And our love fails. Our love for one another often fails. But God's love will never fail. That's the point. And even though we can lose this in marriage and we can just become hard-hearted towards one another over time, I think it's why the image here is not uh, a husband and wife. Although, it doesn't it feel like a bell curve? Doesn't it feel like you recover some, I, at least the experiences of, of people as they get kind of older in their marriage, they kind of recover some of that original stuff, which is neat. But uh, the image here is of a groom on his wedding day. Look at chapter 62, verse 5. As a bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. That's the image. And I could try to explain it further, but I thought, 
uh, that probably would be more powerful for me to just illustrate it. And so I grabbed a couple pictures uh, of photographers who snapped images of the groom uh, when he first caught sight of his bride on his wedding day. So Ethan or Michelle, can you put throw the first one up there? Okay. Now, this is the only weeping one I'll include, okay, because I don't want this to get too girly, right? I mean, we don't want to get too sappy with this. But it captures the emotion, I think. Uh, the confession teaches that God is without parts, body, parts, or passions, and I get the theology behind those assertions, but read the Bible. God talks about the way he gets emotional when he thinks about us because he delights in us. Go to the next one. I like this one. Not only because that guy is Brad Skolton's doppelganger, but there's something really... That is not Brad Skulton. This is not Brad and Jenny's wedding. I just think there's something really sweet about his smile, isn't it? It's not sappy. It's just, it's not overstated. I just, I, I look at his face and I think, man, that's pure delight. Uh, but it gets better. Let's go to the next one. Now this, that's the best. Like, do you see the amazement? This is how I picture Adam when he first saw Eve. Right? Like saying, now that, that's what I'm talking about right there. right? That's good. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, Adam said. In other words, hubba hubba, right? I mean, like, oh yeah, right? I like that. This is one of my favorites, the next one. This guy, he's just overwhelmed, literally weak in the knees um, because of his delight in the one that that he loves. But then, and this is, this one is the absolute best. You'll love this. What can you say about that? That is a bridegroom rejoicing over his bride. That guy can't wait to get married. (laughs) Pure excitement. And the point is, do you believe that God can delight in you like that? Even the best marriages, our love fails. It grows stale at times. It needs to be renewed, but not God's love. He, he delights in you, and his delight in you is new every morning. There is no honeymoon with him that eventually wears off. That one moment in marital love, that instant that captures the very best of what our delight should look like, that first glimpse of the bride, of his groom, God loves like that, and it is constant. It doesn't wane. It is not wearied by our sin. It is pure grace. But before we finish, what does that mean for the future? Because that's where this text ultimately leads us. How does knowing God delights in you help you face the future? And this is verses 7 through 10 of chapter 54. And I wish, man, there's just not enough time because I've gone too long already. But there are, it, it says there that there will be times when God might be angry with you. He might discipline you. But he will discipline you because he loves you. But it, will, and it says there, if he is angry, his anger will only be for a moment. His love will be forever. If he's angry, it'll be for just a a slight moment, but he loves with everlasting love. You see that? And his love is steadfast love, it says there. Hesed love, never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, and always and forever love. He says the hills may depart and the mountains might crumble. I mean, what's the likelihood of that happening, really? I mean, really, are the mountains just going to be reduced to dust? But even if they do, God says, they might. Not very likely, but they might. The whole world might fall apart, he says, but my steadfast love will never grow cold. My steadfast love will never leave you. His commitment to you will never crumble. 
the world would sooner come to an end than he would stop loving you. So don't be afraid. Don't hide in the shadows. Don't shrink back. Don't let your shortcomings and your failures hold you back from the kind of life. Don't give in to fear and live rehearsing the mistakes and the failures that you or others that have loved you have made. Don't do that. Instead, sing and sing the song that we're going to sing now together that says, praise the Lord. His mercy is more stronger than darkness, new every morn. Our sins, they are many. We acknowledge that. Our sins, they are many. The gospel isn't, you're not as bad as you think you are. The gospel is this, our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Amen? Pray with me if you would. So, Father, thank you. I just, I just marvel at, at uh, I wonder at your great heart for us that you would give these words to us, that we could look at them together this morning and consider them, that we might uh, learn to live into the reality of our belovedness, that we, that we might come to really believe that you indeed do cherish us and delight in us, that we might find a way to forget our shame, and we know that the result would be that if we could live having had a firsthand experience of your smile and your delight in us, then we could really become people who delight in one another. And we could begin to be people who, uh, who heal one another's hearts through the love and the acceptance and the grace that we show to one another. We are all desperate to be 100% known all the way to the bottom and yet loved still. And we are so ill-equipped to help one another as parents with our children, as spouses married to one another, as friends trying to do this for one another. We're so ill-equipped at the work that you would really call us to do because back here we, 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 still, we still struggle with unbelief. We still, we still think it's too good to be true. It could not possibly be true that God could love someone like me like that. And so would you break through this morning by the power of your spirit to help us to believe just that? And then to propel us towards one another as friends and husbands and wives and parents to help heal one another's hearts. That we might be people that aren't captured by fear, but that spread abroad, that put ourselves out there for the sake of your kingdom and your glory, which is what we know you desire of us. But come Holy Spirit, help us now even as we sing. As we sing, make this real to our hearts and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. And so the key to living with a condemning heart is when your heart starts to condemn you to not try to tell it that it's wrong in what it's saying. To not say, no, 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 you're wrong. I'm not as bad as you tell me. You're right? I'm not that bad. I'm okay. I'm, it's going to be, it. you say, no, you're, you're absolutely right. But he still loves me. That's what you do, right? It, and that's what this benediction does is it reminds you that because of the work that Jesus Christ has done for you, because on the cross he bore the punishment of your sins so that the Father's face was turned away from him, if you believe then no matter what, his face will never be turned away from you. Instead, his face is turned towards you. You can live, the old language of this is you can live in the countenance of his face. His countenance is turned towards you. You can, with spiritual eyes, look into his face and see, and again, in his eyes, his compassion for you, to hear in his voice, his tenderness, to see upon his face, his love for you. And so, receive this word as he sends us now. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. Go in his peace.